0: Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. Many people come out of the Christmas holiday in poor shape, and to help them recover their spirits, the Book Collector now offers everyone the pleasure of hearing Sarah Bennett read three more of Anne Baer's Bibliovignettes, Misaddressed Letters, Hand to Mouth the Gregunog, and A. H. Bullen's Hope Eternal. Anne Baer, the author of these delightful pieces, is, in cricketing parlance, 107 not out. Sheila Markham's article about her can be found in our autumn issue for 2014.
1: Misaddressed Letters, Biblio Vignettes 7, by Anne Baer. In London, between the north side of Lincoln's Inn Fields and High Holborn. There are three short passages, alleys, snickets, invers, twitchers, lanes, or twittens, according to your local dialect, called New, Little, and Great Turnstile. I have seen an eighteenth century engraving of this last with a turnstile on the south end. Turnstiles kept the cows in Lincoln's Inn Fields from getting into High Holborn, the main east west street of London. My firm, Ganymede Press, had its office and gallery at number eleven. One would have thought this address, eleven Great Turnstile, W.C. One, simple enough. The much more famous New Statesman and Nation was next door at number ten. Some of our customers, they wrote in from all over the world, found the address baffling, but due to the diligence of the local postman, the following addressed envelopes eventually arrived. The Art Club, Gan E Mead, Ten Eleven Great Turnstile Street. W.C. Mr. Ganymede, Turnstile Lane Street, London. This from Hong Kong. Messrs. Ganymede Press, London Limited, Great Guru Guile, London, WC1. Connymede Press, 11 Turnstile, WC1. Ganymede, New Statesman, Great Turnstile Nation, Hoban, London. This from a French university in Quebec. Ganton Press, 10 Grand Turnstile, WC1. Ganymede Press, 11 Great Threadneedle, WC1. There was also a letter that arrived in the envelope pictured above. The letter enclosed was about 5 inches by 3 inches, came from Hove, requested our catalogue of pictures from the National Gallery, adding that the writer was a member of a pony club. He collected china horses he only saw police horses from the seafront, and so had not much chance of life-drawing, etc. All of this written in a very small, neat hand. Not only were the addresses sometimes curiously misunderstood, but so was the name of the firm. Envelopes arrived, addressed to Madame Ganymede, Grandy Mead Press, Ganymede Price Ltd., Press Lord Ltd., Printers and Publishers Original Editions Ltd., 11, Great Turnstile, WC1. Sandy Field Press, 10 and 11, Streakham Turnstile, WC1. Ganymede Editions Limited, 11, Greeks Turnstile, WC1. Gary Mead Press, 10 to 11, Great Farm Mill, WC1. Gary Mild Press, 11, Great Turnstile, WC1. And the following versions of the name granny mead press runny mead press gay mound press ganny hood press fanny mead press let the reader indulge his imagination by inventing those addressed that the post office failed to understand in the early 1950s in one of the icy spells when electricity often failed a customer happened to leave her shopping list in the gallery it started off with the measurements of an empty picture frame she had, whose unfortunate hole she needed a print to fill. And then there were her other shopping needs. Thick knickers, candlesticks. Could there be a briefer or more evocative description of domestic life in the bleak days of early 1950s England? Hand to Mouth at Greganog, Biblio Vignettes 8 by Anne Bayer Nicholas Barker's article from the book collector Winter 2011 on the life of Herbert Hodgson, who worked for some years under Robert Maynard, the manager of the Grigonog Press, jogged my memory. I recall a brief meeting with Maynard in the mid-1950s, one evening in London. His daughter was at the time married to John Bunting, who worked at Turnstile Press, Heinemann and elsewhere. She was a fabric designer. When Maynard heard that I had visited Grigernog Hall recently to give a talk there on Ganymede Press at some art education weekend conference, addressed by Herbert Reed, he talked to me of his time at Grigernog and of the unworldliness of the two Davis sisters. At that time the black and white timbered house was their private home, displaying in the great hall they had built onto it their many Renoirs and Monets, and in the corridors upstairs, more recent paintings they had bought on annual visits to London, many, I believe, from the Lefeuvre Gallery, and the Leicester Gallery's Artists of Fame and Promise. I do not remember seeing the actual Grigonog Press there. He told me that on one occasion he asked Miss Davis if she would allow him to buy the press a new paper guillotine. He gave her the details and the price, I think two or three hundred pounds. She said, as usual, I must ask my sister. Next day, she said to Maynard, "'Yes, we agree you should buy a new guillotine. "'I will give you a cheque. "'I think you said £3,000?' "'He corrected her, and subsequently bought the guillotine. "'He said to me, "'I could have got away with thousands over the years. "'The very rich do not need to count noughts.' "'On another occasion, Maynard had, on his summer holiday, "'visited several small printing presses on the left bank in Paris.' finding it very interesting, and he was sure that much useful information could be obtained there for the Gruggenauk Press if two or three of their compositors and pressmen could go to Paris with him and see how the firm operates. The men were keen to go, and Maynard put the matter to Miss Davis. It would be quite an expensive trip, Wales to Paris, a night or two in a cheap left-bank hotel, and the return journey. He had the usual, I must ask my sister, answer next day, she said to him, we agree that a visit to Paris will be helpful, and we will pay for the men to go there and stay two nights. They will benefit. But we will not pay for you, because you've already seen these firms, and so will not be learning anything new. All three of you can go next week. Robert Maynard told me that it was with much difficulty he explained to Miss Davis that he could not possibly afford to go to Paris again, and that his printers could not possibly having no French and no travelling experience, go on their own. He finally made clear to the sisters what it was like to live from hand to mouth, a thing they had never had to do. The printers, perhaps including Herbert Hodgson, went to Paris with Maynard, and all did benefit. I believe the Mrs Davis's father, after the First World War, levelled a Welsh mountain to make a flat enough area on which to reconstruct an aeroplane hangar for the giving of concerts, Henry Moore only flattened the top of a small Hertfordshire hill to put a sculpture on. Their mother had been one of the financial supporters of A.H. Bullen's many disastrous publishing ventures in Stratford-upon-Avon, and the two daughters, Margaret and Gwendolyn, have immensely benefited the National Museum of Wales in leaving it their fabulous collections of Impressionist paintings, and the book world, of course, with the publications of the Grigonog Press. A. H. Bullen's Hope Eternal, Biblio Vignettes 9, by Anne Beyer. Certain literary people have such enthusiasm for the works of a favourite author that they believe they only have to print and publish them, and thousands of people, check book in hand, will rush to bookshops to buy. The happy result will be lots of money for the grateful author and the publisher. That may sometimes work but not often. These enthusiasts can get information on production costs, but are apt to ignore the matters of publicity and distribution. They also dislike doing sums, even on the back of envelopes, like Alan Lane, with the result that bills come in and sales are small and debts mount. Perhaps these people, basically amateurs, were commoner in the 19th and early 20th century than they are today. One such was and is to me the rather mysterious A.H. Bullen, a name familiar to me all my life as he was known to both my parents. He was a well-known figure in London literary circles in the late 19th century, an acknowledged authority on the minor poets and dramatists of the 16th century, whose works he republished. He rediscovered, after centuries of obscurity, the poet Thomas Champion, Arthur Quiller Houch, in his introduction to the Oxford Book of English Verse, 1900, specially mentions Bullen with gratitude. He was a friend of W.B. Yeats and Catherine Tynan. He lectured. He found numerous partners to fund his books, but financially his schemes always failed. He never learnt prudence. He must have had much charm and powers of persuasion that so many gave or lent him money for publishing schemes that were never successful. His last venture was the Shakespeare Head Press in Stratford, where he lived from 1904 until his death. It was his intention to print the complete works of Shakespeare in his own home. This eventually was achieved. His latest partner, who preceded him at Stratford, and who set up the printing works there, was Frank Sidric, my father. Not only did Bullen produce this Shakespeare, but also many other publications. It was always the same pattern – Grand ideas, high production standards, small sales, bills unpaid, but hope eternal. In 1903-4, to during the months in Stratford setting up the press, my father kept a diary, mainly of printing interest, which, having found the manuscript in the 1970s, I published. Frank Sidgwick's diary, Oxford Published for the Shakespeare Head Press by Basil Blackwell, 1975. Soon after its publication, I chanced to meet Ralph Edwards at a mutual friend's house. I knew of him as an authority on antique furniture and the keeper of the department of woodwork at the VA, and I was surprised to find that he had known Bullen since he was a young man. He had read the diary, including a long essay on Bullen by Paul Morgan, that was included in it. Morgan had described Bullen's life, his literary achievements, his many publishing enterprises and was very critical of him as a scholar and as a publisher. Edwards told me he thought Morgan had given a misleading picture of Bullen. He had failed to appreciate his real scholarship, his expertise, in Elizabethan literature. He said, as an undergraduate at Oxford, he was collecting funds to support Bullen's publishing, only to be told by the master of one college, why should we pay for the gin that Bullen pulls down his throat? And Morgan describes other incidents when Bullen and his partners refreshed themselves with expensive spirits. He died in 1920, soon after his 63rd birthday. It was a sad end. Nevertheless, despite everything, frustrated scholarship, wasted ability, disastrous enterprises, A.H. Bullen has, for me, one vital achievement. It was through him my parents met. Otherwise, I would not be writing this.
0: That was Sarah Bennett, reading Three Biblio Vignettes, written by Anne Baer. To read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal, visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.